0: The problem is not the VAs, they have years of experience. The problem is you, right? You have to learn how to manage other resources. You have to learn how to work with people who cannot read your mind.
1: Hi, you're listening to Ready to Scale, the second season of That Really Happened. This season is focused on APS of real estate, asset, process, and strategy. Each guest on the show will reveal the assets they invest in and why they chose to do so. From multifamily to industrial, self-storage, mobile home parks, and more. Then, they'll uncover the processes, tools, and systems they've used to build multi-million dollar businesses. And finally, they'll uncover new, unique, and exciting strategies to invest in real estate. From co-working to buy and hold, fix and flips, co-living, and much, much more. Now let's get the show started. Hey guys, welcome to Ready to Scale. I'm Ellie Perlman, your host broadcasting from sunny California. When I'm not behind the mic, you know it. I buy multifamily properties with investors who partner with me on my deals. My resource freebie this month is the COVID-19 Asset Protection Guide. This includes several of the best practice steps that I myself am implementing at my apartment communities, as well as other syndicators I've spoken with. You can find this guide and practical steps to implement immediately at www.elliepearlman.com resources. So today I have a very, very interesting and accomplished investor, Neil Bawa. He was already on the show, so you might have remembered him from the other episode. So for those of you who don't remember or didn't have a chance to listen to the other episode, Neil is a CEO at Capitus Investments and Multifamily University. Neil Sources Negotiates and acquires commercial properties across the U.S. He currently owns over 2,000 units slash beds, and his portfolio includes multifamily and student housing properties across nine U.S. states. So Neil is a nationally recognized speaker, and he talks all about multifamily on events and meetup groups across the country. And he joins us today for the second time on Ready to Scale podcast to discuss hiring, and managing virtual assistants during a crisis, which is really interesting because Neil has a very extensive network of virtual assistants, and we're going to talk to him about how he does it and how he manages them during a pandemic, and that can be relevant to any other crisis, obviously. So welcome to the show, Neil.
0: Thanks for having me back on the show, Ellie. It's great to be back on Ready to Scale.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So can you tell us a little bit about, you know, your background and how you got started in real estate?
0: Yeah, recovering technologist. So I had a successful tech career and got into real estate in reverse because of the fact that my CEO, that the boss at my technology company asked me to build a campus from scratch. Of course, he helped, he was a total genius. And together we built this 27,000 square foot campus in 2003 and four. So unlike most people that start with single-family rentals, I actually started with a massive six-million-dollar commercial building and got into real estate in reverse, and then never really looked back. So I love multifamily. I, li- I mean, you know, we buy self-storage units, we buy and build student housing projects as big as 130 million, projects as small as seven million. And one of the reasons that we are able to scale up and down is because of my army of 19 full-time virtual assistants. So we'll talk more about that.
1: You already talked a little bit about the asset portion of the show, which is great. So you buy multifamily, you buy student housing, and you're doing also development. So you're kind of... You're doing, you know, a little bit more than the average sponsor out there that focuses on, on one niche, which I think is interesting. So, you know, we're in the middle of, of a pandemic. When we're recording this, it's April 6th. So we're kind of still in the middle of this, you know, financial crisis. What actions have you taken to protect your assets from the impact of COVID-19?
0: Well, first I'll give you kind of the basics and then we'll talk about some of the actions that I might have taken that might be a little unusual or unlikely that you've heard them before. So we are assessing the health of our community regularly. We have one community that has a single case and we followed the CDC guidelines there for that particular community. We're providing a lot of resident services. We're providing counseling and telling them about all the different options. We're even helping them fill out forms. If they're small businesses, we're even helping them fill out you know, loan forms for PPP and other loans. We are evaluating at-risk tenants. So we've got some properties that have a lot of blue collar people that have exposure to retail or airports. So we're trying, the, one of the first things we figured out is what which of our properties would we see the most delinquency at, That the, which tenants were the most at risk. So it took a lot of time, but that was a very useful activity to try and figure out what it is that the tenants in those properties were doing. We've really amped up our leasing because I, I think that a lot of people are like, no, you really can't lease anything during this time. Nothing's going to happen. And I'm I'm glad that people are saying that because they're leaving a lot of, you know, money on the ground for us to go in and pick up. So we've massively amplified our leasing and our online leasing by using videos. And to be honest, last week, our leasing looked like a perfectly normal week for our portfolio, like there was no, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to tell that we were in the middle of a world changing pandemic. I mean, the numbers look absolutely normal. They didn't look better than normal, but they look normal. And then, you know, we, we are communicating with banks and figuring out all those sorts of things. We're limiting community interactions. Most of our, you know, all of our properties are pretty much locked up. There's no clubhouse. There's no pool. There's no, you know, dog run. We basically lock them all up. Our leasing people have been moved to a virtual scenario where people people can connect with them via Zoom and other tools. And then we are evaluating all of our unit turns. You know, we're trying to figure out whether we want to keep doing unit turns. And there's some properties where it makes sense to keep going. And a number of our properties are in states where construction is considered to be an essential activity. So we haven't been stopped. So Georgia is an example, New York's another, and so is North Carolina. So our properties there are you know, business as usual, right? So we're continuing to do construction activity. And then we're looking very closely at delinquency and financial. So that's a typical set of activities that a syndicator does for their properties. I don't think there's anything in there that other people haven't done. Maybe we've done a little bit more than somebody else and they've done more of different sort of package. Obviously, tenant communication is very key. Where we've used our virtual assistants, firstly, we haven't laid off anybody and we have no intentions of laying off any virtual assistants because right now, having that manpower is extremely beneficial, right? So the first thing we've really focused on leasing and online leasing, so going after tenants more if we were making two phone calls, we're making three. If we were sending two text messages, we're sending five. We're basically chasing the heck out of them and even sending videos directly to their cell phone's messaging app, right? Because that's you know just to get their attention, right? So we're changing the way that we did leasing and... As you already know, my virtual assistants in the Philippines are extremely involved in the leasing process. And we do that in two different ways. We generate about 20,000 tenant leads a year from 29 different engines. And then we process those through a call center that's open 13 hours a day, seven days a week. In the Philippines, six days a week. I don't think they're open on Sunday. And so we process those leads and we schedule them for the property manager. We are not property managers. We have no intentions of being property managers. We're just adding this service because we feel that that's the most beneficial service that a syndicator can add, an operator can add, and then it's been incredibly beneficial. But I don't think it's ever been as beneficial as it is today because today we're fighting over occupancy. We're fighting over every single tenant that we can get. And obviously, we want to get good tenants, right? We don't want to get bad tenants that just come in and realize, oh, we can't evict you for another two or three months. But there's so much messaging that our tenants have to have. For example, many of our properties, Ellie, are in areas where the federal mandate against eviction does not apply because we don't have that kind of a loan. We don't have a Fannie or Freddie loan. Well, we have used our virtual assistants to inform our tenants that while we are sympathetic and will work with them They should be aware that there is no mandate against us evicting them, right? And we tell them honestly that look, the sheriff is probably not going to come out at this point in time, but we believe that the U.S. will reopen for business sometime in May, most likely in the second half of May. And so, if we are have the legal right to process your eviction, we will continue doing that. So you might get an extra month out of it, but it'll hurt your credit, and you'll still find yourself out on the street in the middle of a pandemic we don't say this in as harsh of a language as I'm saying on this show, right? Normally we say it in a, in a soft way. And then we go on to talk about all of the different options that they have with us. And then we offer them help in ways that nobody else has ever offered. We've had people who said, we are a small business and you know we're not able to make money. And, and we're like, well, aren't you aware that there's small business payroll loans and, and other loans, there's $10,000 grants. And they're like, yeah, we don't know anything about them. And then we're like, Don't worry, we can help you, right? So here's all the information that you need. And we've been distributing that information tenant by tenant. No other syndicator can do that because nobody has the manpower to talk to a thousand tenants or 2000 tenants. We have roughly 2000 tenants, but we do because we have a four or five person call center that has scripts and they're learning all the time using Slack channels. So they get a question. They don't know the answer. They type into the Slack channel while they're still on the call with the person. And we just answer it right there saying, this is what you should be doing. So we're supporting our property managers and engaging our tenants. And so far, what we're seeing is is pretty positive results. I mean, I haven't seen kind of April be in any way sort of a gloom or doom month at all. I mean, I'm pretty sure we'll get more than enough rents to pay for our mortgage. And keep in mind... Our property managers are applying for the PPP loan, so our you know we'll have the ability to pay for our staff through those loans.
1: Mm-hmm. And the PPP loan is that's basically the Paycheck Protection Program. So those who have small businesses or are you know sole proprietors or contractors, they can apply and get basically a loan, a very low interest you know loan. And if there are some requirements that if you obey you know, if you basically keep, I think the it's six or eight weeks long for two and a half months, if you keep all employees, if you hire them, or if you just keep work as a 1099 employee, then the loan is forgiven, which I think it's a great idea. We also did that with our properties. We basically emailed everyone with the links with a very easy explanation, and we translated it to Spanish as well. For Spanish communities, basically, if you're a contractor or a small business owner, then this is because what you can do. Because you're right, we know that because that's our business. We're, we're business, you know, people. So for us, the information is very accessible. But for our tenants, not necessarily. They don't necessarily follow all the you know economic news, and and they're not surrounded by other businessmen who know. So when we have information, we share it with one another, and that's how you know, we're able to, you know, make sure that we're on top of everything. So I think that was a really, really great advice. You know,
0: yeah. I, I, one I, thing I wanted to point yes. out there was, Ellie, that mm-hmm. we are so used to connecting with other peers and, and you did a great right. job. Thank you. You know, last Monday, bringing together the the syndicator and, and investor community to just have an informal conversation about what people were doing. And then you shared a lot of resources. We have started to assume that our tenants know all this stuff. And what we found was when we started talking with tenants, I mean, they were even missing the basics, right? So, you know, actually investor education at this point of time, both on the paycheck program, as well as on the furloughs, right, which is a different concept where your employer basically gets paid to keep you on payroll as opposed to laying you off. Their information on that was extremely basic. And not only was it basic. In many cases, it was wrong. They just didn't know what was happening. So that outreach has been extraordinarily beneficial. And I think it didn't just save us money in the sense that, you know, we got rents out of those people, but it actually prevented them from panicking because panic is the wrong thing here. You know, if your resident panics, he's not going to pay you simply because he's panicked.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I think the more closer you are to your tenants in terms of, you know, the more you have open communications, you know, sharing information with them about whatever is happening and also letting them know you can be evicted if not now in a very near future. I think in in saying it right, I think that could be, you know, the right message. And, you know, hopefully we'll know in 60 to 90 days, we can look back and say, oh, it wasn't that terrible. Or we can say, wait, well, A lot of investors lost their investments. And my personal feeling is that because you have a lot of, you know, banks and agencies that lended money, they don't want to end up with those properties, you know, own all of them because this is not an investment for them. It's a liability on, you know, in the books. And I think they're going to also do whatever they can not to take properties from investors because they know how to lend money. They don't know how to oversee and manage a property. That's not their core, you know, kind of their their core business. So I think they're going to try and avoid it as much as possible.
0: I think so. I I think banks are in the same boat as us.
1: And they recognize that
0: there were banks that nearly went out of business in 2009 because they started Mm -hmm. going after the evictions a little bit too hard. And then the value of the, the assets started to fall. Yep. And so they've learned a lot from 2008. They're not about to make those mistakes. But having said that, I mean, I I expect that the U.S. will be out of lockdown in 45 days or less based on the numbers. I've been doing a lot of math on this. But I think that the damage that the shutdown to the economy that we've already done is catastrophic. And so any chances that, you know, 15 days ago, I was saying maybe it's a V, you know, it goes down sharp and comes up sharp i think that that's not going to happen so it might be a weird v and and what i what i mean by that is you know in a in a sharp v you see a down leg and then it just hits bottom and then sharply goes up but imagine when it sharply goes up it stops about halfway right and then it slows down and then it takes about 3 years to go the rest of the way up right so it's it, the first 50% of an up bounce will happen almost immediately as restaurants reopen i think that restaurant and and hotel community, when it reopens, you'll get that 50% back up very quick. But the remaining 50%, there's so much damage that we've done that it'll take a long time. So I'm not being overly bullish and saying, you know, my communities are going to do really well, or my cap rate and values are not going to, you know, cap rates are going to go up, values are going to fall, simply because cap rates are based on our rent rolls. And our rent rolls are going to get decimated, not just for the month of April and May, as most people are saying, I think it's going to be April and May are horrible, and then June is better, and then July is better, and then August is better. But you don't really get back to where you were in February right. until I think to the end of the year, right? So, to me, if I wanted to sell my property today, I would have to take a cap rate hit because of those rent rolls. So I do see that if people want to sell, and I think most mostly people will not want to sell; they'll want to just hold That's on right. and, and wait this mm-hmm. out. But there's going to be some properties that were already struggling in Jan and Feb and those properties will still have to be sold and you're, you're going to see some lower prices.
1: there. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's exactly what we see in the market. We see a lot of sales that were put on hold. A lot of sellers understood they're going to lose millions of dollars if they sell it now and they prefer to write it out and wait, you know, several more months until they can stabilize their income and increase it and then they'll be back in the market. Well, I can talk about these, you know, these things with you all day. I do want to kind of shift and move forward and and talk a little bit more about the strategy of hiring VAs, virtual assistants, as you mentioned before. And I know you have, you know, a very robust system of VAs that you hire remotely. So let's talk a little bit about that. Why is, you know, hiring remote virtual assistants, why is that the strategy that you chose to take versus just hiring locally, going to an office and have, you know, maybe not 19, but fewer assistants that you can see that basically sit next to you every day?
0: Well, there's so many reasons for doing that. And the biggest reason is that I'm able to do such a large number of things that other people are not able to do. I'm able to delegate a massive amount of my workload and I'm able to delegate a massive amount of the workload of my manager. So one of the things that I want to warn people against is I don't think it's possible to have Neil Bawa and 19 virtual assistants. I don't think that that works. But what we've done is we hire one person in the U.S. and then hire two people in the Philippines. And then we just stay with that one-third, two-third ratio. So it's not an outsourced model. It's an outsource-assisted model. And there's so many reasons why people are doing outsourcing. I mean, just so many huge reasons. But I'll just give you a few. Number one, I hire without geographical constraints. So I'm not hiring just in the U.S. And when I say I'm hiring people that are virtual assistants, Yes, a majority of them are the $5 and $6 kind, but there's the $8 kind, the $10, the $15, the 20 and the $30 kind. So to me, it is a worldwide talent pool. And it's especially important if you live in an expensive metro like me. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area because, you know, I can get people, like I have this operations manager that, that reports up to Anna, to my VP, and she's 30 bucks an hour, doesn't live in the United States. But this person is worth at least 200K if she lived here in the San Francisco Bay Area and worked for a technology company. So the quality of people that you get is also enhanced. So a lot of people think that VAs save money. And my message is, I've never saved a dime. What I've managed to do is, instead of hiring one person in the US and paying them $70,000, I've managed to hire seven VAs or six VAs. And I've made those VAs into specialists. And they've become so specialized in their tasks, so good at it that no one person on this planet could ever match them, right? So that the quality over time, right? So obviously this doesn't change the fact that you still need managers in the U.S. You still need executive talent. None of that is changed. But when you're looking at mid-level and low-level work, there's so many things that these people can do that help you generate revenue much, much faster. The reason I'm a syndicator with you know, 28 employees and most people have three or four is they just can't generate enough revenue. But we put these virtual assistants to tasks related to revenue and, can you give and, me an and, example of, say, of a
1: task sure? of several tasks that can generate revenue for you?
0: Sure. So one of the, the quickest way to generate revenues is to find properties, right? So when you're finding properties. Imagine instead of sending emails out to people, you were creating, you were going into Zoom and recording a half an hour event on how to do it and then providing a template to a person who uses your email, right? So we use G Suite. And so the person has access to your email box and is sending emails as you, sending follow-ups as you, and then you're recording your voice and they're sending out voice blasts using your recording, right? So it looks like you're sending out the recording, but it's really coming from them. And even the responses back from those recordings are going back to them so they they can communicate with people on your behalf. So imagine if you had the ability to research the top 1,000 brokers in the US using websites like costarpowerbrokers.com and reaching out to them by first sending them an email and then following up with a recorded voicemail from my, in my voice that actually is going out from them through a voicemail blast software. And then when people respond back, they're actually coming back to those people, right? They're not coming back to me. But now the halo is already there because people have heard my voicemail regarding my $250 million, you know, Project and then the fact that I'm buying a hundred million dollars worth of you know stuff in a day, so that I that halo is there, and now those brokers want to work with us, and these people cannot just process these brokers, but you know processing brokers is not important. What is important is keeping that ongoing touch. What if you could have templates to maintain that ongoing touch? Now we've done less of this in the last year, just to be honest, because we have so many connections already, right? We've, we've had so many projects. But that's a great example of what you can do to generate revenue. That's one way to generate revenue. The second way to generate revenue is find investors. And that's where our virtual assistant team really shines. We have 12 total people, three in the US and nine outside the US, whose only real job is in some way or the other to create investor pools because we don't sell projects. We simply create a community and we nurture that community. And then a project appears and a certain portion of them jump on that project and we don't bother going back to the rest. And then the next project, the next project, the next project. So we have built this massively nurtured database of 30,000 investors. And we have virtual assistants that are in charge of different tracks, right? So there's virtual assistant, one virtual assistant whose only job, eight hours a day, is to add 200 people a week to our Facebook group right? So 200 people a week, 10,000 people a year, roughly, you know, out of those 10,000, you know, I don't know, 100 will become investors. Each investor is worth $150,000. So you take 100 investors, multiply that by 150,000. That's $15 million in revenue. That $15 million in revenue, about, let's say, 10% is going to come back to us, right? For, you know, on the equity that you're generating, that's a million and a half from a person that basically costs you $5.27 an hour, for the whole year, right? So that their cost is about $14,000, including payroll and hiring and firing costs, but you're able to generate $15 million in equity out of that, right? Maybe not 15, maybe it's 10, who knows? I mean, I'm giving you you know, round numbers so you get this. We have another person who does that for the meetup websites. We have another person that does that for Eventbrite. And some of these people are doing two channels, not one, right? But we've got such a massive number of channels. We've got people doing messaging. We've got people inviting other people to webinars. Just like Ellie is doing her podcast, we're basically, and that's the one channel that we didn't get into because it's a crowded you know, channel and there's lots of talented people doing podcasts mm-hmm. already. So it made no sense to go after that. So we left that one alone. I don't have a podcast, but I appear on 100 podcasts a year because I have a person whose job it is to make me appear on podcasts. So now I have 100 podcasts, even though I have none right? So imagine Mm -hmm. the ability to generate a very, very large database through structured people who learn and improve. 90% of the posts that you see on Facebook by me are not me, right? So there's other people that have learned and some BAs are better at language and some BAs are better at process and some BAs are better at phone calls. So you move them around and you benefit from them. So to me, the biggest benefit of being in a pandemic is the work that my virtual assistants have done in the last year. And the second biggest benefit is that I will still have access to equity because I'm not letting any of my virtual assistants go. I'm telling them right now is the time to nurture investors because you need to work five times as hard today to generate the same dollar that you did in Mm -hmm. February, right? And that will change. I know that it's going to change. But today, if I want access to money, it's very hard. Most people are not moving simply not because they think that real estate is overpriced, but because they think that they can't raise equity, and they're probably right because they haven't spent so much time nurturing. Yeah, that's absolutely right. That's the power. I'm not saving any money. That's the whole point. You know, my Mm -hmm. my budget, my operating budget, is very similar to everybody else's. I'm just taking individual people here in the U.S. and splitting them up seven ways.
1: That's interesting, and I think you're absolutely right. I think if you're delegating tasks, and so one. Assistant: that you recognize it as good as is you know in a certain task they master it and that's how you can really scale. I think that's really interesting because I I haven't heard anyone that really utilizes the VA system in that in that way. Usually there are multiple you know handful of VAs and they one is doing marketing, one is doing you know analysis, maybe asset management or you know it's not very it's not structured the way they use structured. I think it's really interesting. I want to move and talk about process, and and I remember from you know our conversation last time on, on the last episode, we basically you you mentioned that you have a color code system to track tasks. So how do you you know if you can talk a little bit more about that system? That would be very beneficial.
0: Sure, it's four or five different steps, and I think that while I'm going to ma- mention certain software, it can be done with whatever software it is that you're using for your CRM, your project management, right? So if you're using monday.com Basecamp, or asana as your projects you know management software or equivalent and using something for your crm your crm could be as simple as mailchimp or it could be as complicated as active campaign or hubspot we use active campaign the goal is to basically tie these together so there's a, here's a few rules that i think are common sense but people don't understand how powerful they are because it's like yeah yeah this makes sense but then they don't actually do it right so number one if you're using a project management tool, whether it's Podio or Asana, make sure that you can send emails directly from your email client into a project, right? And a lot of them support the ability to create a project and then give it an email address. That email address is some big number at asana.com. And then what we do is that For every important project in our company, we put that into our global address list and also into our Outlook email addresses. I I use Outlook even though we're using G Suite, right? So we pay for G Suite, but I use Outlook as my client. So I have every project is listed. So it's Asana appointments, Asana marketing, Asana sales, Asana acquisitions. So I have an email address for each. And I never send a task to a virtual assistant without also copying it to Asana, which means that when I send a email to virtual assistant John in the two field, I also copy Asana. And then I write a very descriptive subject line because that subject line is turned by Asana into the headline for that particular task. And because I'm doing it within that certain project, it goes into the right project, okay? Mm -hmm. So that's the first way in which we hold all of these virtual assistants accountable. We never send them emails without copying our project management software. Therefore, every single task assigned, even if it's a five minute task, still goes into Asana. So they're just constantly used to going into Asana, looking at their brand new tasks that have come in from lots of different managers and going in and checking them off one by one, right? So they can't lose anything. They can't forget anything. Now, then you have to then tie it back to the second system, which is every week, every Monday, we have a Asana work cleanliness report. So typically our virtual assistants have 70 to 150 tasks that are open in their name, right? So some of them are like, have been here for years, so 150 tasks. Some of them are new, so they might have 70. 100 a good number to have open. It's hard to manage. Obviously, it depends on the type of task. You know, if you have 100 project-level tasks, that's never going to work. But if you have 100 five-minute tasks, that's not enough. So you have to know what they're doing. So what what we have is this report, and it's it's... All of our reports are color-coded where green is good, red is bad, orange is okay, right? So what you're trying to do is you're trying to do what is known as public shaming. It is a way where you don't beat anybody. You don't scream at anybody. But in a Slack channel, and we, we don't communicate over email. We communicate over Slack channel. So we've got a Slack channel for everything in the company, right? acquisitions and marketing and, you know, investor relations, sales, everything's got a Slack channel. So we only communicate through those channels. And some channels are open to everyone in the company, including all the virtual assistants. So in there, on Monday, we published this report that shows how many Asana tasks do you have, how many of them are past due, and how many of them are seven days past due, right? And as you can imagine, by using colors, green is good, red is bad, we do public shaming. And then we will make simple comments like, oh, Michelle, that was awesome because 100% of our tasks are not past due because she's going in and cleaning them up. And what we don't allow you to do is we don't allow you to move your past due tasks like a month out. You can only move them Mm -hmm. like a week. Why? What that means is every single week you have to go in there and clean it up again, right? And so, so then on Monday morning, we'll release this list and we'll say things like, Michelle, that was awesome. Or John, that was awesome. And then we say things like, Kathy, catch up, right? Because Kathy's, got yellows in there or reds in there. So now we first created a system where we never send tasks to VAs, we send tasks to projects. Then we created a system that prevents them from holding on to those tasks. They have to finish them. Then we have the final piece de resistance, the really awesome piece that makes all of this work. We use a platform called Upwork.com. It's more expensive than hiring them directly, but trust me, it's worth it. What Upwork does is that it actually looks at the workload that they have in any particular 10 or 15 minute slot of time and gives them a ranking of one through 10, 10 being I'm super busy, right? And one being I'm just laid back and listening to Filipino YouTube, right? I'm not doing anything. Maybe I'm just touching the keyboard every once in a while. So now they don't have the ability to steal time, right? right? Because they can create two Upwork profiles and be working for two different employers. You know, they can be John and Harry at the same time. That doesn't work in our environment at all because what we're doing is we're downloading, and a virtual assistant does this, we're downloading from Upwork, their Upwork tracker, which ranks their time. And then each day, when they finish for the day, Ali, they have to answer the following question. How busy were you today on a scale of one to 10, right? So as you can imagine, most of them say eight or nine, even if they're not busy, right? But on Monday morning, we now have the Upwork tracker report that comes out. And if the Upwork bar shows them being a six, and they're saying there are nine, public shaming. They know what that means. They know that after a while, they have to say, no, 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 I'm a six, please give me more tasks. Because they can see that the Upwork tracker is giving them a ranking of six out of 10, where they're giving themselves a ranking of nine out of 10. Now, how could they possibly hide the fact that they're not working hard enough, right? So this final system, which took us a while to build, which is two pieces, their ranking, which they give themselves every day, and Upwork's ranking, which comes, it's a numeric ranking that we export out of Upwork. And putting them together as two bars for each person in the same report, and you can see everybody else's bar. You notice Michelle's always a nine, right? She says she's a nine, and Upwork says she's a nine. And John's always a seven. And then you notice after a while that John's been fired, right? And then as you move forward in the company, you realize, you know, if I'm not gonna stay at eight and a half or above, After a while, I'm just going to be gone. These guys are just going to get rid of me. So people just adjust their speed of work to move up to that 8.5%.
1: That's very, very interesting. I think that that's one of the main challenges for hiring virtual assistants. You don't really know, or any virtual employee, you don't really know how much work they're actually doing. And I know that with Upwork, I don't know if it's the same thing that you've been using, but Upwork has this I think that there's a system where basically every time the VA is working, they're supposed to initiate something on Upwork. I think it records their screen every 15 or 10 seconds. Is this the same thing what you're using? It's the same system, but
0: we only check the screens once every two weeks, and we only check them for employees that have low rankings, right? Yeah. Because the thing with the screens is you have to basically go through hundreds and hundreds of screens to see what they're doing. Yeah, of course. Mm -hmm. And even if the screen is clean, they could have a laptop or an iPad sitting next to them and be watching Filipino YouTube. So we found that the screen system was not quantitative. I'm all about measuring everything. I need to measure everything. I can't measure screens, right? So on the same screen on Upwork where you see the snapshots of the screens, up at the top, there's a button that allows you to, to switch the view to a numeric ranking, that mm. ranking is what we use. It's on the same exact screen. You're and once cranky. I was able to convert it to numbers, then I was, I was not worried about people basically double timing me because Upwork is only tracking the keystrokes on my system. And so if they were working for somebody else, the keystrokes would not show up on my side and it would show up as zero. And then very quickly within the first few weeks, I can say goodbye. I think you're really busy. It's time for you to go.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, it looks like you've mastered the art of virtual assistant hiring. I think it can be very challenging. It could be also very frustrating for, you know, business owners it's still and investors. I mean, and it's so, like, yeah. at
0: no point have the hiring virtual assistants become less frustrating for me, but I, I can tell the enormous acceleration in my business because of them. So I, I just live with the frustration. I mean, one of the biggest challenges is the country that I like is the Philippines for better or for worse. There's many other good ones, by the way. And they have a very laid back culture. And so I have to deal with about 15% absenteeism throughout, right? And some of them are at 20% and I just have to let them go even though they're really good. It's just culturally, I can't deal with that much absenteeism. It's it's very disruptive because our team works together. We use Zoom all day long and they're in meetings together. So they can't just be missing, right? The other tip I want to give you is never, ever allow your virtual assistants to work whatever hours they want. So our people work from 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific. That's the only hours they can work. They're not allowed to log in later. They're not allowed to log in earlier. 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. We tell them and we tell them a thousand times because they don't listen. So you have to keep telling them, you have a remote job. You don't have a flex job. Okay. It's not flex. Five minutes before eight o'clock, be logged into Slack, be logged into Zoom and stay logged in until 5 PM Pacific. And if you're not, then you need to inform somebody because you're not in a, you're in a call center position. You just, your call center is your home. So, you know, in a call center, if you leave your your desk, you tell your supervisor, right? I'm off for an hour. Same expectation.
1: Very nice. Very good. That's a very, very, you know, good tip. Neil, have you noticed any change in the attitude or in the process maybe that you've adjusted recently due to the COVID 19 epidemic?
0: Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, obviously, in the midst of all these bad things, here's a good thing. As an employee, you have a lot more power today than you did two months ago. I mean, my people do not want to leave. They're falling over themselves to prove their value. They're making sure that we know that they're very committed to us. A lot of their fellow, you know, upworkers have been laid off in the last 30 days because they tend to be the first to go. Yeah. And so, here's what we are doing. We had these interviews with these superstar people that we loved and we made offers to them, but either they didn't accept our offers or they accepted our offers and then didn't start because somebody gave them a better offer, right? Somebody gave them, you know, we're in that five twenty-seven dollars to $6 range per hour. Other people are paying seven and eight and nine. But those people are also very quick to lay them off at seven and eight and nine. So what we're doing is actually going back to all of our notes and going back to those people So those are the stars that we missed out on the last 12 months. We have a full-time recruiter. So we have a Filipino recruiter that just goes around hiring these people. So we told her, just go back and talk to all of these people. And she's like, but Neil, I mean, aren't you also looking to conserve money? And I said, yes. So here's what we're going to do. Normally, this would not work, right? What we're going to do is we're going to kind of re-interview them again. So we re-engage and and that takes some time. And then after we hire them, we're going to start them at two hours a day for the first week, then four hours a day for the second week, then six hours a day, then eight hours a day. So it takes me a month before I'm paying a full scale payroll. And I'm pretty sure that a month from now, people are going to be feeling slightly better about this thing. Right. And so that gives me the ability to hire some of those stars back. So right now is actually a pretty good time, pretty awesome time to hire, you know, virtual assistants.
1: That's awesome. So you're basically using a local Filipino recruiter, but you're also bringing them on Upwork so you can track their work basically. So you're ba-
0: Yeah, so I okay. mean we're paying quite a bit more for doing that, right? Yes. Because if we if we were to just simply pay them through some kind of a PayPal type system, they wouldn't get tracked. So for us, it's, it's worth that extra payment. For us, it's worth doing apples to apples comparison. We have 19 people and they're being compared on the same graph using the same system and the same technology. And that paying the extra 10% is worth it yeah. because you can hold their feet to the fire. Because if you can't hold their feet to the fire, then what's the point?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, that's very interesting. Last question that I have before we move to the lightning round questions is, you know, basically, so we talked a little bit about, you know, how you hire them, how you manage them. And especially now, do you see any change from investors' point of view that is being channeled through your VAs on, you know, how they see the situation? Is there any willingness or appetite on their side to invest right now? And the second part of the question is, how can you train you know, your team members, your virtual team members to basically you know, answer or initiate a conversation and engage with investors in very, very sensitive times like today?
0: So a lot of investor engagement in these kinds of times has to be done by people in the US. So I, I don't think that the people in the, the virtual assistants are doing it. We're using quite a few templates which work. But as the conversation gets more deep, it really has to be moved on to you. So think of me as saving front end time using templates, but then we still have to get involved. So the way we are doing investor conversations is we are doing them through town halls and webinars. So we used to do a webinar every two weeks. We now do a town hall or a webinar every two days. So we did one on Saturday. We had 500, we had 626 people that tried to get in, but we only have 500 Zoom licenses. So we've been maxed out on every webinar that we've done regarding how this pandemic is going to affect life and business and real estate and stocks. So we've done five of them and had 2,500 people. That I think is something that everyone should consider doing, especially you because you've spent so much time learning about all the things that need to be done. that That investor outreach is huge. We've never seen investors so engaged with us Never. Nothing comes close to yeah. it. The last three weeks have been phenomenal. We've never had a three-week time frame where 2,500 investors have been on webinars with us. So from a branding perspective, it's huge. And as you can imagine, 90% of the work that is done for the webinars in the town halls is done by virtual assistants, right? So they're so used to doing them. We do 50 webinars a year. So they're, it, they're on, greased on wheels. That's stuff that they're super mm. comfortable with.
1: Neil, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. We have the last five short questions, lightning round questions. Um, actually, I went back and forth. Should I keep the same questions because I asked you those questions before? or should I wouldn't we remember, use... so it's okay. All right. So, Neil, what's your favorite hobby?
0: Cricket. I am a mad fanatic cricket that? fan. It's the second largest sport in the world and nobody knows about it in the U.S.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've heard about it, but I've never played it. Do you play much cricket? Dude, I used the, to days, under, her, now, now I just mm. enjoy watching it. Nice. Well, what's the one thing that people don't know about you besides the fact that you are a cricket fanatic?
0: I'm a tomato farmer so I am Ooh. equally in, I'm fanatic about data-driven tomato growing so you can watch my videos on my Facebook channel. It's called the Magic of Multifamily then look for tomato growing. And you'll notice that I'm growing like eight different kinds of tomatoes, different heights, different LED lights, different soils. And then you'll wow. notice at the end that I've got this massive jungle of tomatoes that is is threatening to overrun my lawn because I'm, you know, use, basically growing like the best possible yield using combination of lights and soils and heights. And then at the end of that video, I show you how to make a million dollars a year in investor equity by using the tomato.
1: (laughs) Very nice. I'm gonna Google it for sure. Now I'm, I'm curious. So Neil, when you started hiring VAs, what do you wish you had known when you just started?
0: that all of them would take that much time off. And it took me a year to figure out that they didn't all have sick parents and sick kids, that it was just a cultural thing. I just wasted a mm. year worth of time before I figured out, oh, this is a cultural thing with the Filipinos.
1: Got it, so how do you go about it then?
0: We just keep, the ones that are just, that constantly have absenteeisms. We, we just fire them. We can't deal with it. So the, the short answer is, have your own recruiter.
1: Got it. All right. That's important. What's your number one advice for an investor or a syndicator that wants to scale their business and hire VAs?
0: Don't hire one. Hire two. Hire full time. It's an investment. It's not a hobby. It's not a experiment, right? It works. Hire two. Hire them full time. And yes, they will have nothing to do. So you can do, you know, two hours a day, four hours a day, six hours a day, Mm -hmm. eight hours a day. So scale them that way. And the pressure that that will put on you to give them tasks to do is worthwhile because it'll force you to learn how to manage them. The problem is not the VAs. They have years of experience. The problem is you, right? You have to learn how to manage other resources. You have to learn how to work with people who cannot read your mind.
1: You need to write a book about it. (laughs) I think so. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's not easy. It sounds easy, I can tell from experience. Finding the right people and hiring and managing them, that was much harder than finding a deal and managing the property. You know, much, much harder to do. So that was good advice. So Neil, thank you so much again for everything. If our listeners want to get in touch with you, where can they find you?
0: MultifamilyU.com, that's multifamily followed by the letter U.com, has over 50 webinars a year. There's one for virtual assistants. It goes into depth on how to use the Upwork filters to find the right people. And then there's 50 other webinars of those kinds. They're all data-driven. They're all analytical. We're geeks. So if you're a geek, join us at multifamilyu.com.
1: All right. Thank you again for the third time. I really appreciate it, Neil. And take care and stay safe.
0: Awesome. Thanks. Bye-bye.